If you have your Bible with you, or you'd like to use one in the back of the pew in front of you, turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 8. New Testament book of Mark, chapter 8. We will be focusing on verses 32 to 33, but we will be reading verses 27 to 33 to get a little bit of the context and remember what's going on. If you're a guest with us, we're working our way through the book of Mark, and this morning you will find a very unusual Christmas series and message, not really focusing on that as much as we are focusing on the cross, but I hope by the end to present you something that you can take home for Christmas, maybe something to think about. With all that in mind, we're going to Read Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 33, and watch as Jesus and his disciples are at cross purposes with one another. With all that in mind, let's read the word of the Lord. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he, that's Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If you consider this Jesus' first sales pitch, It did not go very well with the disciples. Like a business where the staff is focused on customer service and the product, but they're working for a CEO or a board that's focused on profits. Jesus and the disciples are working towards different goals. They are at cross purposes with one another. They may speak the same language. They may both say they want to see God's kingdom, but how they see that happening contradict one another. And friend, Peter's interaction with Jesus should challenge us, especially those who are close to Jesus, who are familiar with Jesus, that while we may speak the same language as Jesus, we may find ourselves like Peter at cross purposes at odds even, with Jesus. Now, how can that be? I want to examine this crisis, this confrontation between Jesus and Peter and show you two different components in the crisis. Along the way, maybe apply some things to our lives. The first component in this crisis, brothers and sisters, is the main problem. Verse 32, the main problem. Let's read verse 32 again. After speaking of the cross, Mark tells us, Jesus said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began 
to rebuke him. Communication was not the problem. That seems to be where we always run into a problem with one another, communication. But this is not the problem here. Look at the first sentence Mark writes in verse 32. Jesus said this plainly. Now, how plainly did he say it? Go back to verse 31. You can see. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. It's pretty plain, pretty blunt, very specific. It's not always been the case with Jesus. In Mark chapter 4, verse 33, Mark tells us, With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. Jesus, up to this point, has been speaking in riddles, speaking in pictures, hiding things even from people. But now he hides nothing. Jesus openly declares the word of the gospel with a frankness and a simplicity. There's no metaphors. There's no allegories. Jesus is straightforward and direct. As Mark Strauss writes, there is no doubt about Jesus's meaning. Here's the irony. This is what the disciples and people around Jesus had been asking for all along. And now Jesus gives it to them and they don't want anything to do with it. John chapter 10 verse 24, the Jews gathered around him and said to them, said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, he did. The problem is not in how Jesus speaks. The problem is in what the disciples wanted to hear. Friends, How often do you think we run into that same problem? Potentially every time we open the word, potentially every Sunday we come to church. The problem is not in how Jesus speaks. The problem is in what we want to hear from him. Most times if you come to the word and you are studying a particular passage or a specific topic in life, and you want to know what God's word has to say, friends, often the Bible is clear. Often the Bible is plain in what God has to say about life and godliness. The problem is we don't like the plain truth. Friends, when Jesus speaks to you plainly, embrace it, no matter how hard it is. 1 Peter 5 verse 6, Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So communication is not the problem. The main problem is the plan. Peter's problem is with the cross. Verse 32 tells us Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, we don't get what Peter specifically says in the book of Mark, but we do in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, verse 22, Peter says, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, let's just take a moment and think about what Peter is saying here. 
In verse 31, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must be rejected. The Son of Man must be killed. The Son of Man must rise again. And then Peter pulls him aside and says, Jesus, I know you say this must happen, but it will never happen. As R.C. Sproul writes, God's plan was the last thing Peter wanted to hear. What does this crisis show us? What does this confrontation between the disciple and the Savior show us, friends? And some of us, every one of us needs to hear this, could relate to this. Peter shows us, friends, how quick you and I can go from a high to a low, from a mountaintop to a valley. In two sentences, Peter goes from declaring the greatest truth that Jesus is the Christ to going to the point of correcting Jesus' view of the Christ. In three minutes, he goes from answering the one question that no one can answer to trying to teach God himself. Batman said it this way. You either die a hero or you live long enough to become the villain. And it took Peter one conversation to go from the hero to the villain. As Warren Wiersbe writes, Peter goes from the rock on which Jesus builds his church to the stumbling block of the cross. Now, if it can happen to Peter, and just like that, in the same conversation, what do you think could happen to you and me? How firm is our foundation? Galatians chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And friends, that may sound harsh. But it's, it's pointing us back to where our confidence should be. If things are going great for you right now, don't put your trust in yourself. Our confidence is in the cross of Christ and in Christ alone. In your highs and your lows, put your hope only in Jesus. Here's another thing the conversation shows us. The audacity of sin. The audacity of thinking that you know more than Jesus. Peter thinks he's helping Jesus. He pulls Jesus aside. He thinks Jesus has gotten a little too excited, a little too extreme. He's taken things a little too far. He's taken things to his head. We're this close to changing the world. We're this close to bringing God's kingdom and so Peter thinks he's going to help Jesus see the light. He thinks he's going to help Jesus see the path, the truth. So he takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Now in the right situation, that's what a good friend does. Friends, Proverbs 27 verse 5 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus tells his disciples to rebuke a brother when he's in sin. So according to Peter's own words, Jesus is the Christ, but he's treating Jesus like a sinner. 
He thinks he's being a friend to someone who's stumbled and fell away from the Lord. He's treating the anointed one like a wayward prodigal child. Peter is talking to Jesus. He's rebuking Jesus the same way Jesus spoke to the winds when he told him to be still. Peter is talking to Jesus the way Jesus talked to demons. What audacity. You see, this is a 20-something fisherman calling out the creator of all things. This is a finite human creature with no formal education trying to teach the eternal son of God. The one who is called to follow is trying to take the lead. Friend, the next time you're tempted with any kind of sin, the next time you fall into sin, what do you think that says? What does our sin say about God, about Jesus? Friends, our sin is a rebuke against him. It's saying that we see something he does not see. We We understand a part of life that he doesn't quite get. He's missed something here. And even though he's tried to hold this away from us, we know better than he that this is good for us. Every time we sin, it is a rebuke against our Savior. It is an audacious statement. Isaiah 29 verse 16, the prophet says, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker? How he did not make me or the thing formed say of him who formed it. He has no understanding. Friend, where in your life right now is it upside down? The Bible gives us an antidote, a step to take in this situation when we've turned things upside down and act as if we know more than the creator. The word confession means to agree with God. So instead of rebuking him, we come to him and say, you are right in what you say. You are right in who you say I am. I agree with you and I will follow you. Proverbs 28 verse 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Friend, that's a good word to hear. Never be afraid to come to the Lord and confess. It's good news that we can obtain mercy in Christ. But it's not the word Peter gets. Peter doesn't get Proverbs 28, 13. He doesn't get a good word to hear. When Jesus speaks, he shows us something else. The second component I want you to see in verse 33 are the hostile influences that are driving this crisis between Peter and Jesus? What is driving this confrontation? And get ready for Jesus to speak, like he does in such a surprising way. Verse 33, turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus has none of it. He doesn't want to be taken aside one-on-one like some sinner. Jesus wants a family meeting. 
And so he turns and makes sure that every disciple is included in this conversation. He doesn't just want Peter to hear what Peter needs to hear. He wants James and John and the rest of them to hear, and he wants you and me to hear. He's not only cluing the disciples in, he's cluing you and me in to some very important truths. And he shows us two influences that put us at odds with God, that put us at odds with his plan and the cross. The first is a supernatural war. And we've seen this over and over again in Mark, but Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. And just like what happened when Jesus met that Gentile woman, the Syrophoenician, and called her a dog, people are trying to protect Jesus today. They don't want this harsh Jesus that calls Peter Satan. And so they try to water it down and say, this is what Jesus really meant, and this is what the word Satan means, and it's really not as bad as it sounds, and Jesus isn't that mean. One question. How do you think Peter heard this? How do you think Peter felt when Jesus, his mentor, looks at him and calls him Satan? Do you think it wasn't that big of a deal? Is there any way he couldn't be offended? This was the common everyday term for the devil in Jewish language. Mark chapter 1 verse 13, we've seen this devil. Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And there is a connection here between Mark 1 and Mark 8. What happened in the desert? How did Satan tempt Jesus? If you read in Luke 4 verses 5 to 7, we get a clue. The devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you, Jesus, then worship me, it will all be yours. Friends, what Satan did in the desert is the same thing Peter does at the mountaintop of his confession. He whispers to Jesus, skip the cross. Let's just get to the good stuff. Let's just get to the glory of the kingdom. Friend, right when you think the battle is swinging Jesus' directions and one of the disciples sees who Jesus is, the enemy launches an attack on Jesus through that same disciple. Satan uses the one who understands Jesus at that moment. Satan uses the one who knows more about Jesus than anyone else so far. That's where the attack comes from. Skip the cross. And so what we see, friends, is Peter's idea of just getting to the glory, and just getting to the kingdom, getting to the power. It's not just a bad idea. It's demonic. And this might shock you and surprise you, but I, I want you to know this and to be aware of this. Friends, there are many today in the church, churches, Pastors, celebrities, people of influence, musicians, I can name them, I don't want to do that, who today have turned away from the cross, have called it divine child abuse, have abandoned the gospel, still proclaim to be Christians and say that God is only love and you can be accepted by him, but Jesus never died for your sins. 
And you probably have their books on your bookshelves and their songs on your playlist. They don't publish this stuff very broadly, so it's hard to know. But friends, that's not just bad teaching. That is satanic. Jesus must suffer. Jesus must be rejected. Jesus must be killed. Jesus must rise again or else our faith is in vain. Beware of those who teach Christ did not die on the cross. That's not the only hostile influence going on here, though. It's not just the devil's fault, okay? Can't use that excuse. The other influence is one that every single one of us has creeping inside us right now, even in our minds as I say these things. It is happening right now. The human way of thinking Read again verse 33. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here it is. The heart of the problem is a matter of perspective, a matter of thinking. Two competing ways, two opponents at the battlefield. A waging of war of the minds between God's way and man's way. The things of God and the things of man. Friends, we are not naturally born in such a way where we think like God thinks. Where our philosophy is his philosophy. Our understanding is his understanding. And over the next three chapters, over and over again, we'll see it. Jesus is telling us God's way is about sacrifice and service and losing your life. And the whole time, the disciples, all they can think about is power and prestige and authority and success and gaining. Peter gets in Jesus' way because he holds the wrong perspective. Friends, even today, after the resurrection, this is what keeps people from God. This is what keeps people from Jesus. It's not the church's style. It's not the church's music. It's not cultural influences. What keeps people from Jesus is the way we think about the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to 2 is all about this, but in verse 23, 1 Corinthians 1 Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Our view of the cross naturally is that it's foolish, that it's weak. It doesn't make sense. The cross is where our thoughts and God's thoughts collide. As John MacArthur writes, what the disciples thought was bad news is the best news. In our way of thinking, what, what we see is weakness and foolishness is the power and salvation of God. Friends, if you've not embraced the cross in your life, allow me to share the greatest news possible. You've heard this before, but you should hear it again. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God made you and me to represent him on earth, but we had the audacity to think we had better plans. 
Instead of representing him, we could represent ourselves. Friends, God did not leave us to that. He sent his son to be killed on a cross as the only way for us to be reconciled to him. And he rose his son from the grave so he could make us like him, so that we could live forever like him, so that we could think like him, and so that we could give ourselves like him. Friend, you may have heard that. You may be able to even repeat most of that. But Peter shows us very clearly it's not enough just to know Jesus is the Christ you have to embrace the mission of his cross. You have to embrace what he came to do, what he accomplished. Have you done that? Do you truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for your sins? As a statement that you could not be right with God on your own. As a statement that your way of thinking and your way of living and your way of acting was wrong. But thanks be to God, Jesus lived the perfect life and died for you as your substitute, as your replacement. And was risen from the grave to give you what you could never achieve. Have you embraced that message of the cross. Brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, there are only two ways of thinking. There's only two ways of life, two perspectives. There are the things of God and there are the things of man. Can you just assess the way you're operating right now? How you live day to day? How you wake up, how you go to work, how you make plans for your family. What's driving you as you think? What influences are moving you? What's driving your life right now? The things of God or the things of man? What perspective matters most? What influence sets your priorities and decisions? Friends, when you come to a point of contention where where your ways of thinking don't line up with God's way of thinking and it doesn't make sense, then to step out in obedience would look silly, would look ridiculous, it'd be scary, it'd look foolish. Trust the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You can apply that to any situation in your life, any relationship, any problem, any struggle, anything. But in this moment, in this season, let's consider Christmas. As we head our way through another Christmas, what's going to dominate our thoughts? What's going to drive us in the midst of all the hustle and bustle, the parties and the plays, the parades, the concerts, the songs, the presents, the time with family, the colder times alone, the movies, 
and all of that, what is going to dominate the way we think? How are we going to approach this holiday season? Friends, don't work at cross purposes with the Lord. This season and every season, keep an eternal perspective. Ask the Lord to help you see what he sees, to to think the way he thinks. Colossians 3, verses 2 to 4, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your mind on things above this Christmas. Let us pray.